Hello and welcome to another edition of the Money Mitch Effect. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels, and let's get into it. A sports podcast. Delighted to have you with me. A couple of good guests on today's show. We're going to talk about two of my favorite sports. First of all, we're going to talk about UFC 210 with Jose Youngs, an MMA writer for SI. We'll talk about that card, some controversy on it. Daniel Cormier defending his title successfully over Anthony Rumble Johnson, who subsequently retired after the fight. And we'll look ahead at UFC 211 and some other rumored fights down the road, including the return of George St. Pierre. And then second up, Justin Petruska, a good friend of mine from my slew hockey days, is going to come on the show. We're going to discuss the NHL playoff preview. 2017 playoffs, it's only a day away, and we are going to start talking about that. All the first-round matchups will get previewed. We even touched on Sergio and the Masters. You're not going to want to miss that. It's the Money Mitch Effect. New week, new show. Let's roll. All right, now it's time to get our UFC on here in the Money Mitch Effect. With that, we're going to bring in to the show reoccurring guest, Jose Youngs. Jose is an MMA writer for SI, comic book nerd, and also like me, happy that the Hardys are back in the WWE. So, Jose, oh, thanks man. for joining the show. I'm so glad you brought that up. What a time to be alive right now. <laughs> I know that was, I didn't realize how big it was just worldwide, but you brought up the fact that. The video is one of the most popular video their return to WrestleMania. So yeah, it's just it's insane. It really is a great time to be alive. Yeah, and uh, it's at like I believe it's at like twenty million views in a week, which is oh. which is madness. And like to put that into perspective, uh, when the Dudley Boys came back like two years ago, like their video is at like three million in three years. So <laughs> Hardy Boys are legit. They really are, and there's, uh, they're, they're trying to get our generation back into wrestling, or the powers that be in the WWE, and I think they're doing a pretty good job, but we'll switch now to UFC. Jose, last night we're recording this on a Sunday. Jose, the UFC 210 pay-per-view is in the books. A very interesting fight card at its peculiar moments, some elite-level fighting, and I want to ask you to start with this. Outside of the two main, events, main event fights that we'll get into in detail in just a few moments... What else stood out to you on this card? What else did you like or, or not so much like on the other fights on this card? Outside of the, the top two fights, I was really impressed with uh, Cynthia, Cynthia Calvillo. The woman's strawweight submitted Pearl Gonzalez, and uh, it's her second UFC fight. Uh, she fought at UFC, I believe, 209, which was last month. Second pay-per-view, second main event spot, too. Her last fight, uh, she she was on the, the fight pass and then got bumped up to the pay-per-view and made the most of it. The next month, she's on the main card again, this time uh, on purpose, and subs Pearl Gonzalez in, in even more impressive fashion and takes to the mic, does her best Nate Diaz impersonation. She's got Team Alpha Male behind her. And uh, now Dana White's throwing her name in the ne- as the next Ronda Rousey, Nate Diaz. Uh, she's getting real popular. She's submitting people. I'm not going to put her in the top 15 yet. Uh, she hasn't faced anybody ranked. She's definitely not even close to a title shot. But Cynthia Calvillo, 2-0, two, two fights in two months, two submissions, is 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 important for the women's strawweight division, especially because that division is so shallow. Well, she was dominant. We watched that fight, and we couldn't believe how just cerebral she was and how she was able to just take control of the fight. But I'll do you another one, too. Oliveria. I mean, that yeah. guy was, and you mentioned it too, I mean, one round into the fight he wins with the rear naked choke, but he is the guy 
that would just fight anybody. He was willing to just get in the octagon with whoever, step right up. Will Brooks is a was a quality opponent, and he just shredded him. I was very impressed with him as well. Yeah, and I believe he has the record, or he's up there for most submission wins in UFC history. But the issue with Charles Oliveira is he's beaten the Will Brookses and the Jeremy Stevens and the Nick Lentz. Like he beats all everyone fifteen to five, pretty dominantly. It's not like he's it's like eking out decisions here. He's submitting everyone. But then he'll fight the Frankie Edgars and the Anthony Pettises and the Ricardo Lamas is like five to one, and he always he's always has a stellar performance. And then uh, stumbles at the end, and he'll he'll lose. Uh, so I really, really oh, he lost to Max Holloway too, but he he uh, injured himself a minute in. So I want to see that fight run back in a five round fight. But Charles Oliveira is an enigma because again, like what we didn't even talk about, we were talking about it yesterday. Is uh, he struggles to make one forty five? Uh, he misses weight a lot, and that's his natural weight class. And so the UFC made him go up to 155, and he submits the former Bellator champion in the first round. So do you make him stick at lightweight? Do you give him a chance to go back down and prove himself at 145, even though he's shown that he, he's a risk not to make weight? Charles Oliveira is an astounding fighter, one of the most talented fighters, and is super young. And I wish he would get his, his weight-cutting situation down and uh, so he can be 100% when he fights the top featherweight because he's the real deal for sure. Yeah, we, we talked about it too. He, he's ideally in that 150 range, but that weight class does not exist. He is an enigma. He's fun to watch, and he gets the win last night as we turn our attention to the co-main event on this card. The first of those two matches was a middleweight fight with the returning Chris Weidman, who Jose's been on a bit of a losing streak, and yep. he faces Musasi, who... Had a lot of buzz going, has been doing pretty well. The fight was going back and forth, and then you get to that that second round, and we're like, okay, well, how are you going to score this fight? What What's going to happen? And then, basically, for lack of a better phrase, all hell breaks loose. There wasn't wasn't an illegal knee. It thought that We thought there was that case. Musashi throws the knee. Weidman puts his hands on the ground. The long and short of it is that the fight was stopped. Doctors run into the ring while the referee looks at replays, and the doctors decide that he's not able to continue and the fight is given TKO to Musasi. We watched this live. I was confused. I don't know what your initial reaction was, Jose, but just how bad was this gaffe and who, if everybody, I guess, is to blame, but how do you break up the blame in this scenario? The first blame is to the, the referee, Dan Mergliotta, because that was not an illegal knee, uh, but that's that's human error. That's like a, a, a umpire calling a strike once a ball. Like In the heat of the moment, like he was also standing behind Musasi, didn't have the best view, so that is human error. I don't blame him entirely for that, but that's the first mistake. The second mistake is he called it an illegal knee. Wyman got five minutes, and if it is illegal, that could have been a DQ win for him. But then they went to the cage side and watched the replay, and they determined it was not illegal. It was legal, which then the doctors went in. They shouldn't have gone in, and they, they stopped the fight. However, replays are not allowed in, this, in New York for uh, the UFC and MMA. So, A, if the referee stops it and he says, that was an illegal knee, I'm giving you five minutes, that's the end of it. They should not, like, that's it, like, Chris Weidman should get five minutes or a disqualification. They should not go to the replay. Uh, they did. They gave him, it was like a five, seven-minute break, and then they, the doctors came in and ruled that he, he wasn't able to fight or all that stuff. But as far as I'm concerned, the referee said, illegal knee. 
he said illegally and that's that's it the doctor can come in and give him five minutes and that's it yeah. uh you should not have gone to the replay whatsoever it's like uh it's like in football getting an actually like getting us getting another challenge even though you can't uh it makes no sense uh i feel terrible for the city of buffalo I feel terrible for chris weidman i feel terrible for gagan musasi because he he needed uh he needed a statement win and this while he did win this isn't that's not this isn't the win that he wanted to propel him towards the title fight but uh the the referee and the athletic commission blew it i don't blame the fighters i don't blame the doctors because they shouldn't even have been allowed in there anyway so it, yeah. it was a mess yeah um as, as far as the the human air side of it as you're looking at this clip you see that it's bang bang that it's close and you didn't have the best vantage point and mistakes happen in officiating that's part of sports in general but jose could you explain like in more detail to the casual ufc fan why exactly is the replay different by state why is there no replay in new york but there would be i guess in other states it's all has to do with the athletic commission of each state. I mean, uh, when if, if people watched it, they might have heard at the beginning of the main card, like uh, the new rules aren't like this is what the, the broadcast said. John Anik, uh let the fans know the new rules were in effect and the fighters were made aware because pretty much some athletic commissions recognize the new rules. Some don't. Some have different regulations on uh, like like we would even mention Pearl Gonzalez might not have been allowed to fight <laughs> yeah, because yeah. she had breast implants. That yeah. and they, they ended up going back over, like, letting her fight. But New York's Athletic Commission, this is the first year they've had MMA in, like, 20-something years. They they pulled Rashad Evans from the fight a couple days before, back in November, because every other Athletic Commission medically cleared him except for New York. Mm-hmm. It, it's just a young not young but they're just not used to mma uh they're used to they do boxing and kickboxing but they don't do mma they they still need to figure out like dana white said it's it's like go it's this new york's fighting in new york is like going back to 2001 where you basically have to reinvent the rules every single event like like the new rules now before if you had one hand on the ground you were a grounded opponent and you could not get kneed or kicked or uh in the face now, in the new rules, say you need two hands. Uh, that is to prevent fighters from, uh, say, someone gets a body clinch like Gegard did. Normally, you would unload on knees. A fighter would just basically put two fingers down, and that prevented him from throwing knees. And uh, now they changed that rule to prevent that, to say you need two hands on the ground, basically like a three-point stance almost, a four-point stance. That makes it a little more dangerous in, at some points too because some fighters might – do that instead of protect their head. Uh, Chris Weidman shouldn't have been needing the head anyway. He should have been blocking. So it's the rules need, they need to, there's a lot to figure out in the unified uh, MMA rules. But uh, I don't blame Chris. I don't blame Gegard. Uh, the New York State Athletic Commission is, if the UFC's had three fights in New York and all three have, have had four fights and all of them have had controversy. So yeah, it's a mess. And I thought too, it's interesting because anytime something like this happens, somewhat controversial, we all just try to guess what Dana White's reaction is going to be. And those quotes were interesting. He's like, they just need more experience. Like they, It's almost like he kind of understood that this was the risk in doing business in a new state. And you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Jose, but I just think the way the money is shaped and, and the possibilities in New York, he kind of seems like he understands that this is part of the job, that there's going to be a learning curve. Business is too good to pass up, though, in the state of New York. Yeah, the problem is with that, and I agree that it, it was going to take a learning curve. Is they've had three pay-per-view cards, like major cards, in the city in the state of New York, and they they can't 
basically you don't want a learning curve to be on your yeah. ma- like on your major cars. I mean, they had that mess with the Holly Holman uh, Germain for the women's inaugural featherweight title, and they blew it in that card. They blew it in the Anderson Silva fight too. They blew a little bit of it in uh, UFC 205 when they were changing all these fighters around, and they pulled Rashad and they pulled Kelvin. Uh, they blew it in this with the the Pearl and Daniel's weighing nonsense, and these aren't the cards you want to be making mistakes on. You want to make a mistake, do it on a UFC fight pass, do it on an amateur show, do it on a Bellator card. But I don't want to see important fights because Chris Weidman versus Gegard Mousasi was one of the most important fights for the middleweight division, and they blew it. Yeah, they uh, did. this is not. It's not the time you want. <laughs> no. Certainly not as we continue chatting here. Jose Young's on the Money Mitch effect. And I'm glad, Jose, you brought up the UFC 205 weigh-in because I want to transition to the main event, the Cromier-Rumble-Johnson fight. That weigh-in nonsense, as you put it, was, was pretty perfectly described. Because I know Cromier has to get to 205. He weighs in at 206.2 and then is allowed to take a break and miraculously drops 1.2 pounds. I don't know how the scales work especially in the in the state of New York, but that seemed a little ridiculous to me. Yeah, and uh, I've talked to a few amateur wrestlers when I ha- like just via text and uh, wrestlers in college and uh, high school and what have you. And I talked to some UFC fighters and like they know what DC did. Like he he games the system where everyone knows if you put a little pressure on something in front of you, you can lose a pound just standing there. Like if you're standing on a scale and there's like a surface near you can kind of put pressure on it to like lift yourself off and that's absolutely what he did uh, you can kind of see him uh, fiddling with the with the first of all he walked out and basically said hold it right here he walked out with the towel and was like hold it here and then you can kind of see him pushing it up and down and he lost a pound 1.2 pounds in two minutes which is should be impossible but dc knows what he did it is what it is uh, at the end of the day the only fight the only person that it should affect is anthony johnson Anthony Johnson did not care. He's like, I don't care. I'm still fighting for the title. Uh, If he doesn't make weight, then it's not a title fight. Uh, So he didn't care. And at the end of the day, he's the only one that it would have negatively or positively affected. So it is what it is. Certainly is something to (laughs) take a little enjoyment out of the fact that there was another mini incident at the weigh-in. But the fight went on as scheduled. Cromier and Rumble Johnson. And again, Mirror image, carbon copy, if you will, of the last fight. Cromier chokes him out in the second round. Let's start on his side, Jose. Another dominant championship performance. He's getting up there in age now at 38 years old, but just textbook, workmanlike performance. How does he keep doing it? How does he keep implementing his style on very game, very dangerous opponents? Daniel is, for people who don't know, he's an Olympic former Olympic wrestling captain, uh, and I was talking to someone uh, today, and he's like, Daniel Cormier is basically just the San Antonio Spurs of the UFC. Like, uh, isn't the most exciting fighter to watch, but is incredibly efficient, does exactly what he, he knows he can do, and he does it well, he does it better than most, and yeah, he might not be the most exciting, but he's always going to be in the top two, and he may lose to John Jones, just like the Spurs will lose to LeBron James in the Heat. And then the next year, he'll be just as good. So Daniel uh, did it smart. He, he didn't jump in uh, right from wrestling to MMA. Uh, after his Olympic dreams were over, he went to American Kickboxing Academy in San, in San Jose and took a long time to learn striking. He didn't just 
learn the basics and then rely on his wrestling and come in and dominate with his like he does dominate with wrestling now but he wanted to know he basically wanted to be an expert kickboxer before he made his his MMA debut so he took the time to learn everything and didn't come in as a one trick pony and that's that's paying us dividends because his MMA debut he's already better than pretty much everyone and he's buzzed through the competition and was fighting for a UFC title like less than a few years after he made his MMA debut. So Daniel Cormier did it right, kid. So if you're listening to this, don't just jump in. Do what do what DC did. Do right. it smart. And that's that's fascinating too because I would I would have to think it's just only logical, Jose, to look at the correlation with the age of some of these top fighters now. I mean, is that where we're? I mean, he's 38 years old, but he's at the peak of his game. You look at some of the other divisions, heavyweight included, where some of the fighters are older. Is that because you think they're slowly getting it they're not rushed right into it and they're able to have more success that way heavyweight is a little different because they they don't have to cut weight so it doesn't deteriorate their body so badly but yeah i mean uh, and also like even that like welterweight like roy mcdonald made his mma debut when he was like 17 years old i mean alistair overeem has 50 professional fights and because he made his mma debut when he was like 17 and would fight th- like six times a year. Uh, DC d- has, doesn't even maybe, I don't know his record right off the top of my head, but I don't even think he has 20 professional fights, but he's the UFC champion because he doesn't have all that wear and tear. I mean, Alistair Overy probably in his prime could take a punch, but now that he's been in 50 punches and he, he used to cut down a light heavyweight, uh, it's catching up to him. And DC is may not be in the physical prime of his career in terms of his athletic ability, but his brain is still there, unlike some fighters who have, like Chuck Liddell. Uh, Chuck Liddell was, like, younger than DC is now when he retired because he had been fighting for so long and took so much damage. And DC's style is he doesn't take damage. He negates damage, and he gets on top of you. And he's like the Spurs. He he knows when to take take a break. He knows when to conserve energy, and then he explodes at the end when the playoffs come around. So yeah. DC does. DC is an intelligent fighter who knows, has all the tools. The only issue is John Jones is not an intelligent fighter, but he has the perfect tools in every category. Yeah, it's really remarkable. And before we get to that sure thing, I'd say, as long as John Jones comes back, that fight that we're looking forward to finally, I want to talk about Anthony Rumble Johnson. Jose, he... Loses to Cormier for the second time, and then after the fight, announces his retirement. Now, he's only 33 years old. He said he's going to walk away from the sport for other interests. It looks like business interests is what we're, we're looking at here, although he's not explaining it. It sounded like it was a move that ca- caught a lot of people by surprise. Just how surprised were you at this? I mean, this is a guy that, other than Cormier and, and probably Jones... He's as good as anyone in that light heavyweight division. How shocked are you that he's walking away from the octagon? I was surprised that he walked away because he was in the prime of his career. Uh, he was He's easily, I would put him the third best light heavyweight in the world after John Jones and Daniel Cormier. And realistically, if DC and Rumble fought 10 times, I bet Rumble could win three or four of those. It's not like he just smoked by DC every time. Uh, weird game plan. He shouldn't have... Uh, he shouldn't have tried to wrestle the Olympic wrestling captain, but he did, and he paid for it. No one really knows where he's going. Uh, said it was on, it wasn't MMA related. I'm not trying to start rumors or anything, but oddly enough, he lives in Florida. Yet his Twitter bio now says LA Rams in it. Uh, so some people are thinking he might be not playing football, 
but something over there because his quote was he's tired of going to the gym every day and having another guy try and knock his head off and having another grown man wrestling on top of him. Like he's just physically tired of it and burnt out and wants something else. And he's always been into fitness. He's in excellent shape. His diet is on, his dieting is on point. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he went in, if he opened a gym or he had something to do with the Rams. Uh, he said he, he made it known he wasn't playing, but he also said he's good friends with a lot of the people in the LA Rams front office. So, who knows where that's going? Yeah, we'll have to keep our ears uh, open to that one. But um, I don't know. I'm, I was shocked by that as well because, like you said, I thought he was one of the better light heavyweights, and uh, it leaves that division a little weaker. But we are looking forward to that Cormier-Jones fight, the rematch, that when Jones, is, as Cormier put it, gets his academics in order, that fight's going to yep. happen, which was a great quote, by the way. But Comey, I should point out, too, he was booed pretty heavily, and I asked yeah. you this question when it was happening. I know they were in Buffalo. Jones was there. Jones, you know, from the Syracuse area, that's, you know, that's Jones' country. I don't know about popular opinion. I know Jones is a, is a rock star to the casual UFC fans, but we'll see what happens, Jose. Do you think Comey is going to continue to get booed and, and be the fans' unpopular choice in this heated matchup? Yeah, I mean... People love, like, I don't want to say casual fans are bad for the sport because no fans are bad, but casual fans recognize greatness, and they, they and John Jones is the greatest, arguably the greatest fighter who has ever stepped in an octagon, and realistically, he should be undefeated. That I don't consider his loss a loss, and they respect greatness. It's like they hate Tom Brady, but he's the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, they hate DC right now. They A lot of people hate the Spurs because they're boring, but... The only thing Daniel Cormier has going against him that people would hate is the fact that John Jones is his rival. I mean, you saw what Dominic Cruz is, in my opinion, the greatest bantamweight who's ever lived. And um, he has never been cheered. I mean, and the issue with that is his main rival was Uriah Faber, who is a massive fan favorite. So it's not that they hate DC. They just love John Jones for some reason or another. They just love john jones and daniel cormier is just happens to be john jones bitter enemy so if it was if it was anyone else they would be booing him too and it's not like alexander gustafson who has a whole country behind him or glover to who has a country behind him it's they're both from america they're both african-american daniel cormier is very politically correct and uh friendly and there's a comment that they see him on tv all the time they honestly they might be burnt out of seeing dc so much uh, and john jones has been away and people people miss People miss John Jones. That might be the case, but That's John Jones. People love John Jones, and DC just happens to be his enemy. You see that in sports a lot, where an athlete just goes up against a more popular athlete, and they get booed. As a result, that seems to be where that is. And Jose, this fight rumored for July eighth. Is that something we can kind of look ahead to in, in pencil, at least? I don't know about it. Maybe they would have to put because they said John Dana White says John Jones will never be in the uh, main event again, which seems bizarre. But if you can't trust him to pass a drug test, you can't pa- trust him to not drink and drive, and he does, he's, tech, he's not even eligible right now. Like, who knows if he's training? I don't know if July's the case. They would need – because the UFC's policy is the heavier division always headlines. So uh, if Conor McGregor is the only lighter fighter that would ever headline over him and, and the heavyweight division – so they would either have to make it the co-main event with the heavyweight title in the main event, or they'd have to fight in the co-main event of a Conor McGregor fight. Uh, 
So who knows? I, I wouldn't mind seeing it in July. They were supposed to fight in July last year. I don't know if they want to risk it again. Uh, maybe they do it in another state, uh, not Las Vegas, because John Jones, They may, maybe they don't want John Jones in Las Vegas. Probably wise, yeah. Yeah, so I have no idea. They haven't even announced the rest of the schedule yet. We could see August. We could see September. It could possibly be the co-main of George and Michael Bisping. That could be another one that could headline it, but uh, who knows? Uh Let's get John Jones, let's get his academics together first before we book him a title fight. So perfectly put, and we just, we want to see this fight happen, but it seems like, as you're saying, we're going to have to be patient. Yep. Jose Young's on the money, Mitch Effect. A couple more housekeeping items in the UFC before we wrap this up. Got to talk to you, Jose, about the return of George St. Pierre. Yeah. He's coming back, and he's not even going to come back to his previous weight division where he dominated for years. He's not going to fight welterweight. He's going to fight middleweight and challenge Michael Bisping for the title. Dana White says it's looking like May. It's a stunning return in a lot of regards. The time he's taken off is one thing, but coming back to a whole new division, and I know his namesake, I know what he's done, but he's still skipping to the front of the line to fight in a division that he's kind of unknown in. Where do you where do you gauge this? How, how stunning is this in the grand scheme of things that St. Pierre is going to take this fight? Uh, it's... it's... It's a weird fight because George you can make, is another one of those fighters you can make the case of being the greatest ever. Uh, he is hands down the greatest welterweight who has ever lived. Uh, and it, if any fighter can return from retirement and get an immediate title shot in any weight class, George is one of them. It's interesting. and people, We wouldn't be having this conversation if George returned at welterweight because he never lost the welterweight title. He retired as champion and then came back in his oddly enough, fighting for the middleweight title, which he never wanted to do in the past, and now all of a sudden Michael Bisping's the champion, and, he wa- and George St. Pierre wants to fight him. So if he was returning at welterweight, yeah, he no doubt should get the welterweight immediate title shot, and everyone in that division would agree. But the fact that he's never fought at middleweight before in his life and is getting an immediate title shot is holding up the whole division. And like you and I were talking about yesterday, they show that top Ten of the they showed the top ten graphic of the middleweight division, and anyone in the top seven could be champion. Yeah. And they're being that whole division is being held up by a super fight, which is super fun. Gets casual fans going. Uh, the UFC's been desperate need to to get that Canadian market back, which they seem to have lost when George retired. They lost that Canadian market. Uh, so with him returning, uh, and he wins. If he beats Michael Bisping, uh, you know his next fight is going to be in Montreal or Toronto because they've been in desperate, yeah. desperate need of a Canadian superstar. So I get it. It's a fun fight, but it sucks as like you want to see the best fighters fight the best fighters. And you, I, as a, someone who respects the rankings, uh, Yoel Romero should be fighting for the middleweight contender. And yeah. even Michael Bisping is like, yeah, I feel bad because Romero definitely did enough, but it's George. And I don't blame Michael. Michael Bisping, because George St. Pierre is going to do a million ba- million pay-per-view buys, and he gets a cut of the pie, so don't blame Bisping one one bit. Right, no, and, and that's that's part of the business. Everybody understands that, but Romero and Rockhold, 2-3, respectively, they want title shots, or they want the opportunity to at least move the process along. I think that's a better way to put it. When, when it's held up, nothing moves, the wheels stop churning, and you just, you're at a standstill for months. Regarding, regarding what happens. But I, I do have to question, as great as St. Pierre is, as great as he was at welterweight, he's still 35 years old, Jose, hasn't fought in years, and I wonder if the result isn't favorable in this fight. Is it a one and done, or will he stick around for a few more fights afterwards? 
I think, in my personal opinion, uh, George has always said he's actually closer to 155 pounds than 185 pounds, which makes it even more strange that he's going up in weight. Uh, He's not that tall. I mean, uh, he's about 5'10", 5'11", so he's going to be very short for the middleweight division. They're taller, lightweights fighting in the UFC, so I could easily envision George winning the middleweight title vacating it immediately dropping back down winning the welter well not not i don't know if a win depends on who the champion is uh getting the welterweight title shot and then going from there i mean i think he saw connor become a two division champ he wants to be a two division champ uh and then for all we know uh his third fight could just be uh connor mcgregor versus george st pierre oh, wow. and then he retires which would be the biggest fight in mixed martial arts history uh so think, who knows? Do you think it's all predicated on a win versus Bisping, though? Like, yeah, he has to. If he if he loses to Michael Bisping, I think George either drops down and gets the welterweight title shot, or he'll fight Anderson Silva. Uh, but first, if he if he beats Michael Bisping, I think he's going to drop down and go for belt number two. The Silva fight that we waited for for a decade and uh, gonna don't turn, even get me started. It's going to turn into Mayweather Pacquiao or uh, the it already, It's already been pa- it's already past that at this point. <laughs> Would it be like Ray, Roy, uh, Roy Jones fighting uh, the rematch against uh, Bernard Hopkins? I think that's yeah, like yeah. Because like Anderson's already lost a few times. He's he hasn't lost the mystique, but it's not like they when they when they were at the top of their they were one A one B and the pound for pound they had the two longest winning streaks. They were both the champions at the time, and God, the UFC blew it not making that fight. It seems like they've learned from their mistakes, though, with the way their super fighting schedule has been. They've actually overcompensated a little bit, but yeah, surprise, yeah, <laughs> coincidentally, when they sold it to WME, <laughs> yeah. We'll see. It's uh, it's going to be an interesting couple months. Well, Jose Young's last thing before we wrap this up. UFC 211 is next. And we, we were talking about this. This is a damn good card. There are some good fights on there, headlined by the rematch, Stipe Maiochik, who has only lost only really two fights. One of them was to Junior Dos Santos. He's going to get another shot at the title. Stipe gets a chance to avenge that loss. Should be a good pay-per-view. What are you looking forward to in this one? Well, I, this is the best pit in top to bottom in terms of quality fights. This is the best UFC card of the whole year. Uh, I can take that back. The best MMA in general, not just UFC fight card. Every single fight on that main card is absolutely incredible. It's five fights, uh, two title fights. Everyone is in the prime of their career. And then even on the prelims, you get Eddie Alvarez versus Dustin Poirier. You got Christophe Jaco versus David. The returning David Branch two-division title holder in World Series of Fighting and is now returning to the UFC after a few years. So uh, you even got Jason Knight fighting on there, who's one of the who's like 23 years old and is one of the top prospects in the entire UFC. And it's in Dallas, so if you're going to buy a fight card, this is a most excellent one. This is one of the best fight cards the UFC's ever put together. So to say I'm excited for this would be an understatement. Oh, yeah. I, I, I can tell just by listening to you talk about it how excited you are. And I would say, too, if Stipe wins this fight, we gotta do we start reevaluating where his place is on the heavyweight pecking order, I guess, legacy-wise? Because he will have won a lot of fights in a row and started to clean out a division that was pretty deep when he started his uh, rise to the top. If Stipe wins this fight, and this is going to sound odd, th- he will have tied the record for most title defenses at heavyweight with wow. two. 
That's how. That's because. That's how. Like, because Brock Lesnar was the champion, he got really sick, so he missed all that time. He could have been defending, and then he lost to Kane, and then Kane's knees failed him, uh, and his back started failing, so he missed all that time, so he couldn't defend his belt. Uh, and then Junior was he was the champion, and he ran into Kane over and over and over. So, uh, if Stipe wins, he'll be. He's not forty. He's still physically fit. Uh, he doesn't hasn't taken a whole lot of damage in his past fights outside of that junior fight, which a lot of people think he won. He's also a fireman, so he's still a fireman. He didn't quit his job. Oh, so yeah. if you're gonna if you're gonna build a division around a fighter, you could do a lot worse than a firefighter from Cleveland, Ohio, uh, who just happens to be the nicest human being on the planet. So uh, the UFC struck gold with Stipe as their champion, and Junior is also equally one of the nicest men i've ever met not just a fighter but just men in general so uh this is a outstanding if you're a fan of boxing these two have the best boxing in the whole division so i am so excited for this one should be a good one we're all excited as ufc fans for another heavyweight clash that could go down as one of the best of the year on the most loaded fight card mma wise of the year well jose youngs thanks for joining the show and appreciate you coming on talking ufc we'll definitely be doing this again Hopefully to talk more UFC and not, you know, cross promotions like the Mayweather McGregor fight. Yeah, let's let's not get started on that. <laughs> Just got to keep my boy Triple G off that card. That's all I ask. He's fighting Canelo November 2017. I'm calling it now. We'll do it. Oh, well, I can't wait. We'll definitely have you on to talk about that. So that's going to be exciting too. But Jose, thanks again for coming on the show. Of course, man. Thanks again to Jose Youngs for hopping on the show. One of the best out there, the best I know at least, at covering the sport. Very, very knowledgeable. He'll be on soon as the pay-per-views mount up this summer. Some big fights to look forward to. Thanks again to him for appearing on the Money Mitch Effect. Now it's time to talk to Justin Petruska, college hockey teammate of mine. We're going to preview the 2017 NHL playoffs. We also talk about the LA Kings. Well, they fired their coach, Daryl Sutter, and GM Dean Lombardi about an hour before we went on the recording interesting times to say the least first round preview nhl 2017 playoff justin petruska here it is now on the money mitch effect all right now joining us on the money mitch effect blast from my past hockey teammate we've shared uh, many a moment on a hockey bench and other walks of life Justin Petruska from St. Louis Justin we're going to talk NHL playoff hockey but thanks for joining the show anytime Mitch happy to uh, happy to join today I want to discuss something first before we get into the madness of the NHL playoffs which is shaping up to be one of the better ones Justin, I know you as a hockey expert, but also as a fanatic of the sport of golf. And what do you think about Sergio Garcia winning his first major at the Masters this past weekend? I couldn't have been happier for him, just because he he had too many instances in past majors where he was so close to winning and didn't pull it out that I was really happy to see him hit a couple clutch shots his second shot into number 15, oh, yeah. uh, the par five, to make um, to make a clutch eagle. And then coming down the stretch, I thought was just wonderful. You know, you go for, for someone who themselves 
thought they could not win a major to turning their career and their personal life around um, and pulling it out. I don't think you could be happier for someone else in the golf world. Yeah, it was a great final round. There was a lot of drama going back and forth with all the momentum swings. But what, sh- what shocked me, Justin, was that he misses that putt on 18. Everybody thought he was dead in the water to come back and mm-hmm. then to, to win it on the first playoff hole 18 again. I thought was just shocking and a, and a reversal of fate. It was a very good Masters tournament, one of the better ones. A lot of drama. You had speed is highs and lows. But at the end of the day, Sergio just made the shots when it mattered. And I was I went from not really caring if he won, never really being a fan, to rooting for the story and good to see. You know, it's good to see a guy win the first one. It's been a long way. I can't believe he's only 37 and he's been around this long. But I was happy for him at the end of the day. Agreed. Agreed. Happy for the guy. You know, you want the tournament to go to someone who truly wins the tournament. And I think based on his performance yesterday, Sergio won the tournament. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a great story. It was a good tournament. I do want to switch now to the NHL playoff preview. But, Justin, before we do that, we had breaking news here uh, in Los Angeles uh, about an hour ago. And I just got you up to speed on it. Daryl Sutter out as head coach for the Kings. Dean Lombardi out as GM for the Kings. These are guys that won two Stanley Cups in the last half decade, and they're gone. I know we're used to coaching changes and, and front office changes in the NHL, but I think it's reasonable to be pretty stunned by this move. What do you think is going to be the next step for, for all these parties involved? I mean, I'm stunned to see Sutter go, especially two championships, one of the best coaches in the game. Just backing up even a little further, I'm stunned over the course of the last, what is it, two or three seasons for the Kings. You know, they've gone from a point where they were at the top of the hockey world to replacing their captain, Dustin Brown, and now they're replacing their head coach and their GM. Wow. I I don't know where you go from here. It's tough. I mean, I'll say this first. This is, to me, more of a reflection. The struggles they've had in the past two years is more on Lombardi than Sutter. I know Sutter has his moments, kind of like Hitchcock, who was also let go this year by the Blues, where he kind of burns out players. You know, he he can rub them the wrong way, and and you can get fed up with it. But the biggest downfall for the Kings in the past couple years, when they haven't really contended, they've missed the playoffs again two times in the last three years, Justin, the ridiculous contracts they signed. Mike Richards, who... They had a chance to buy out. They didn't do it. Now they're going to be paying him for the next three Summer Olympics. And then you have Dustin, and then you have Dustin Brown, who's going to make about $8 million for the next five years, I think. Six and a half for five years. And they're begging that the Golden Knights take him in the expansion draft. I mean, they were capped out by some poor decisions. And to me, that's always going to be on the GM and not the coach. Agreed. And that's just a handicap that the that the Kings are going to have to deal with until these contracts either one get picked up by you know another team two are traded or or three you know are absorbed in the expansion draft or four they just flat run out you know they've they've run their course I mean it's really handicapped as you said what they can do in the offseason what they can do at the trade deadline they have an aging roster that isn't really flexible I mean they have the star players but they've been they've been unable to add depth I just want to say one thing before we move on to the playoffs. If I'm an NHL team, I know there's going to be a lot of coaching openings this year. Assuming he doesn't retire, I go all in on Daryl Sutter because he just wins. He's great in a playoff series. He can expose weaknesses. 
I don't know how you think, but I think that's the guy I would target this offseason if I needed a coach. I would agree. I think you know he's someone who does a good job of holding his players accountable to an honest effort every night. So if I'm looking for a new coach, I think he's at the top of your list. Yeah, we'll see what happens. He's a human quote board, too. But if you look at everywhere he's gone, and he's had success everywhere, but he always leaves kind of unceremoniously, and he leaves a lot sooner than expected. So something to monitor. Well, Justin Petruska, Money Mitch Effect, it's time for the playoff preview. And we're going to talk about each first-round series, a couple minutes on each, give our prediction for how it's going to go. And then at the end of the show, we're going to talk about who we think is going to win the Stanley Cup. And, Justin, just a, a brief thought at the beginning. I'm really excited. I'm excited every year for the playoffs. But I'm excited this year because I feel like there's a youth movement in the playoffs where we're finally going to see if a lot of these younger guys, the next generation, can measure up on the big stage in hockey. I agree with that. I think I think the biggest person you're going to see in the playoffs this year is Connor McDavid. I mean, no one's been more exciting to watch this year than him. So you'll see him take off against the Sharks. He's had a tremendous season series against the Sharks. Can't wait to see what he does in the first round of the playoffs. Yeah, that's that's going to be exciting to see McDavid. Not only is he did he lead the league in scoring, the only player to make to produce over 100 points, but he's playing the defending Western Conference champs in the first round. So he's going to have his hands full there. We're going to start in the Eastern Conference with that. Well, again, we don't do the one-eight matchup, and I think we're both on the same page that we don't like the divisional side of things and how. And how Gary Bettman and his team of uh, elite NHL uh, brain trust have decided to make it all divisional matchups in the first round. But Washington-Toronto, the top seed in all of hockey, the President's Trophy winner again, the Capitals, playing a team from a different division, the Maple Leafs getting that second wild card spot. And Justin, this is a this is a playoff series where we get to see Austin Matthews, we get to see Mitch Marner, Nylander, a lot of young players in the playoffs for the first time. We know about the Capitals' big expectations. They won the season series 2-1 to one over the Leafs. Do you think that this could be a series, or is Toronto going to have their hands full from the get-go? I think Toronto's going to have their hands full from the get-go. To be honest, I don't know that I see the Leafs winning more than one game in the series. It's hard to argue. I realize both You know, Toronto has a little bit of an upstart offense this year. It's hard to argue with Washington's depth at forward with the likes of Backstrom, Ovechkin, Kuznetsov, Oshie, Justin Williams. I mean, they just have a, a very veteran core that's very capable of putting up some good points. And their defense seems to be more solid than what the Maple Leafs have to offer. Um, I mean, they've got Carlson, Niskanen, Shattenkirk, and, you know, Braden Holpe has has played really out of his mind this year. So really, my thoughts are I, I can't see the Maple Leafs um, winning more than more than one game in the series. Yeah, I, I just want to be clear on one thing. Last year when the Penguins beat the Capitals, I was pretty emphatic that it wasn't a choke, that Pittsburgh was a great team and they went on to win the Stanley Cup. This would be a choke. This is the definition mm-hmm. of choking if they lose this game. And I think it's going to be it's going to be tough for Toronto. It's going to be a good experience for them going forward, and you need that when you're a team that probably wasn't even on anyone's playoff radar at the start of the season. But you think about the firepower that Washington has, and I know Toronto has Frederick Anderson who played well, and Babcock's done wonders, you know, making the defense look well. But 
Uh, Washington's got too much firepower, and this should be smooth sailing for them. Justin, how would you? I mean, it, it's insane. The power play unit of Ovechkin, Backstrom, Oshie, Carlson, Shattenkirk. I mean, that's pretty good. <laughs> that's insane. I think it's hard to argue. I think, you know, that's arguably the best power play um, in the league. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, you know, you make moves like getting Shattenkirk this year at the deadline, Oshie last year. They had, you know, Justin Williams. This is their team to make a run. And I'm, I'm going to say a sweep. I don't like to predict sweeps, but I think Washington wins all four games in four. Well, we're going we're gonna to move to the other playoff series in that division, the Metropolitan Division, and it's the Penguins and the Blue Jackets, which I'll say, too, on record, this could be the best series of the first round. I know there's a lot of candidates, but you have, what, two, the, two of the top three teams in the league and they have to play each other in the first round? I mean, this is eerily similar to, in baseball terms, when the NL Central a couple years ago was Cardinals, Cubs, and Pirates. Justin, this is two teams in bad luck that they're in that division. Agreed, and I, I agree with your comment that this could be the best first-round matchup. I mean, Pittsburgh finished this, the season with with 111 points, Columbus with 108, you know, playing in the top-performing division um, in the NHL. I can't argue the fact that I think this is the best first-round matchup for this year. Yeah, and remember a couple of years ago, these teams met in a first-round matchup 2014 that was unbelievably entertaining, a six-game win for the Penguins, but it had high drama in it. The Blue Jackets still looking for their first playoff series victory in franchise history. The Penguins looking to defend their Stanley Cup. And I want to spend a few moments discussing you know, the two different narratives here. I understand that the Penguins are the experienced team. Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin, Phil Kessel, they won a cup last year. And Columbus is the new team on the block. They weren't expected to be here. Everyone kept waiting for them to fade, and they didn't. So history says, and a lot of reasoning says, that the Penguins should win this series. But I want to give Columbus a chance for two reasons. One being, Justin, that they have four deep lines. Everyone was talking about how maybe outside of Cam Atkinson, they don't really have a superstar, but their depth was amazing on offense and defense. you got to throw Bobrovsky in there. But two, the Penguins, Justin, are pretty beat up. No Chris Letang in the entire playoffs. That's going to be a big loss. I think this is going to be a very long, grueling series. Yeah, so when I was thinking about this series, I put them down in pencil as going seven games. Um, and I liked what you said about them being banged up without, you know, most notably without having Chris Letang on the decor. I think that'll really hurt them this year. From a goaltending perspective, Sergei Bobrovsky was was pretty good this year. Yeah, <laughs> um, I think when you compare him to Matt Murray, to me it's a little bit of a toss up. So at that point, then you're comparing you know you're comparing the offense. Looking at the Blue Jackets, what do they have up front? You know, you always you know comparing it to Pittsburgh, you always hear of Pittsburgh's you know big three and Crosby, Malkin, and Phil Kessel. But you know, quietly, the Blue Jackets have. Cam Atkinson, Nick Foligno, Brandon Saad all put up very stellar years. So with the team, you know, in my mind, I think the Blue Jackets are a little more fresh. I think they're a little more energetic compared to the more beat-up Penguins. I think it goes seven games, and ultimately I think I think the Blue Jackets pull it out. Wow, wow, okay. I was really surprised you said that. And, as, and I'm going to try to do this in the most unbiased way possible. It's impossible for me, Justin, to not take the Penguins in seven here. 
I really am rooting for Columbus. I'd like to see them win, but for them to win this series would be remarkable. And I agree with everything you said about Pabrowski and how deep they are up front. And, and Wierenski has been amazing. He, he's having one of the best rookie seasons that no one's talking about on the point. Their power play was amazing. I hope I'm dead wrong, but the year that Crosby had, it's really tough for me not to think that if there's a seventh game in Pittsburgh, that he's not going to just say, this is my game, this is my league still, and win. So that's why I'm going to go with Pittsburgh, unfortunately, in seven. I hope I'm wrong, but we'll have to see which direction it goes in. All right, Money Mitch Effect, Justin Petruska, NHL Playoff Preview. And let's talk now quickly. We'll, we'll kind of move through this series because I don't think it's you know as exciting as some of the other ones. But in the Eastern Conference, Ottawa and Boston is a first-round matchup. I wouldn't say underwhelming because all these series have uh, the ability to make a run, Justin. But this, to me, looks like the Bruins series. I think they struck gold, avoiding the Capitals in the first round. And one of the hotter teams that isn't getting the press of other teams in the league right now are the Boston Bruins. I like them in this series. I like Brad Marchand, who's, in my opinion, close to or, or at an MVP finalist level this year. And I think with two Rask between the pipes, I think the Bruins are the team to, to look for here against Ottawa. Yeah, I agree. Um, I had the Bruins also winning winning this series. I think the from a, from a playoff perspective, the Bruins seem to lead to be um, a little more seasoned. Tuka Rask is always solid. He seems to be um, up to the task. The Senators, they seem to obviously bounce back this year, making the playoffs after being out of the picture. But I just don't think um, they have the, fire, the firepower and the grit Yeah, it was an interesting season because the Atlantic Division was just so down across the board that we weren't sure any of these teams were good, especially compared to the Metropolitan. Ottawa's a nice story. I think offensively they were a little challenged at time. Hoffman didn't have the season we kind of expect him to. Everybody knows how good Eric Carlson is, it goes without saying. But yeah, there's something about this Bruins team where I feel like they're able to just step up. Bergeron in the playoffs, Marchand, as I mentioned. And I like this team here. I'll say six games because I think Ottawa is going to put up a fight. But I do favor the Bruins along with you uh, in this series. And then our last Eastern Conference series, Justin, Rangers and Canadians. The Rangers were the fourth team in the Metro Division. But because of this NHL wacky playoff system, they were able to avoid all those teams in the Metro, at least till the potential Conference Finals matchup. They get a Canadians team that was very inconsistent this year but won all three regular season games against those Rangers. I think this is a contrast of style, Justin. I don't know about you, but I think this one could be a very long, very interesting series with a lot of momentum swings. I agree, and I agree with your comment about the Canadians being streaky this year. They've been a little bit of a different team this year with Shea, Reb- with Shea Weber um, on the blue line. Carey Price has, seems like he's had an up-and-down year. If he's on, the Canadians will have will be a tough team to beat. I think you can say the same thing about Henrik Lundqvist. That being said, I think I think the Rangers seem to have a little stronger um, of an offense. To me, it's hard to to argue with Chris Kreider, Michael Grabner, and then of course Rick Nashty. And then you also have the uh, you know the upstart of, of, of Jimmy VC who's had who's had a pretty good year. Seems to be a pretty solid third line player for the Rangers. I think this this series goes six or seven. 
ultimately, I think the Rangers pull it out. I gotta ask you though, and I can't believe I'm bringing this up. If I would have brought, if I would have said this a couple of years ago, people would have looked at me like I was crazy. But the goaltending issue in New York with Hank Lundqvist and the fact that Carey Price has the ability to steal a series or two, like we've seen, you think that's going to play a factor? I mean, I, I would expect to see Hank play a little better, but he's getting up there in age, and this hasn't been his best year. It wouldn't surprise me. Mm-hmm. If Carey Price came in and played lights out, you know, similar to what you've seen in L.A., you know, the years they had their, their cup runs, it wouldn't surprise me for Carey Price to, you know, to come in and steal a couple games uh, from the Rangers. And if he does so, you know, like I said, this is, you know, in my mind, this is a series that goes six or seven games. So if, if Carey Price can steal a game or two, um, that may be just what they need, you know, to push him over the edge. Yeah, I'm going to go Rangers in seven, which would be wild if they go into Montreal and win uh, game seven on Montreal's home ice. But I think they can do it. The offense is looking good. Got to see a little more of JT Miller and uh, and Kreider. But we know what Nash, Nashty, and all those guys can do. And, and I think defensively, the Rangers are starting to hit their stride. So I think it'll be a good one. Well, let's move to the Western Conference. Justin Petruska, Money Mitch Effect, NHL 2017 Playoff Preview. Top team in the West, in the Central Division, the Chicago Blackhawks, and they get the team that, I'll be the first to admit, they they underwhelmed me and they kind of underachieved this year. They get the Nashville Predators in the first round. A brutal draw for Nashville. They get Chicago, who's owned them in the regular season and in playoffs past. Is there any chance Nashville has in this series? Let's just, let's just be real about it. Is there anything you can sell me on Nashville having a chance to win this series? Uh, I was thinking about this before we started, and I can't see the Predators winning more than a game or two. I think they'll win at least one, but you'd really have to convince me that, that they have what it takes to win two. I do like, you know, Nashville has a couple strong forwards in Victor Arvidsson and, and Philip Forsberg, but I don't know that you can argue with the Blackhawks. I mean, they have three really solid lines that have been through the playoffs multiple times, not to mention the, the decor that you know the Blackhawks offer. That being said, I, I really can't see I can't see the Predators winning more than more than one game. It's just been a, a very pedestrian season for a team with such big expectations since PK Subban arrived. Part of that is on the players around the stars at the top. The depth just isn't there. Pekka Rene is, is not looking like his old self. And the other side of that is who they're playing. It's the Chicago Blackhawks. It's, you know, it's funny. We look at Kane and Taves and all these players, but they're the two highest paid players in the league. Keith has a big contract. Seabrook has a big contract. Yet every year when they have to trade players away, they find new players that come up and, and are stars. And I know we, we donate a lot of brains to science after they're gone. Can we donate uh, Scotty Bowman and... Uh, and the rest of the front office's brains to science for figuring out whatever they've done in hockey? Because I, I still don't know, Justin, how they're able to just continually bring new talent in there. So I, I they're they're at a they're at another level for sure. I'm gonna say Blackhawks in five. And I think I'm just being a little generous with my predictions here. It would not surprise me if it was a sweep. So that brings us to the other central playoff matchup. And I know you're going to have a vested interest in this one, being a St. Louis guy. The Blues and the Wild. The Wild, who were on top of the Central for much of this season, Justin, 
They play, you know, they struggled down the stretch. Chicago caught them, passed them with ease. They got that two seed, and they play the Blues, who, despite some some interesting moves in the offseason, despite firing a coach, trading away one, their, one of their best defensemen, they still get that three seed. Mike Yo has them playing good hockey. They won the season series against the Wild. As a St. Louis fan, how optimistic are you going into this playoff series, this playoff run? against the Wild. Yeah, so I've obviously been keeping a close eye on the Blues um, as a St. Louis native. I really think the series is is a 50-50 matchup, and um, I think the determining factor here is going to be the play of Devin Dubnik. You know, for the first two-thirds of the season, Dubnik played really well, top goaltender in the league. His save percentage was you know above 93%. Over the last you know, third of the season, his save percentage fell below 90%. Picked back up over the last couple of weeks. But, but that being said, I think the series hinges on how well he plays. You know, if, if the Wild have the Dubnik that they had to start the season, I think they're going to be really hard to beat. If Dubnik is, is anything less than that, I think they leave the door open for the Blues to, uh, to take the series. Now, I have some interesting thoughts on this one, Justin. First of all, isn't it strange that going into this series, based on years past, that the Wild are the team with the depth and, and they just try to grind you down and the Blues are suddenly the team with just firepower at the top and some depth questions? It's so funny how the roles have reversed from years past. I think the Blues team having some playoff experience is helpful, but I think what's another interesting point that isn't being brought up enough this is, what, the first playoff uh, postseason in years where the pressure is almost off? And the Blues don't have these high expectations, these overwhelming, we better win or else. I think they're playing, you know, with less pressure, and, and I think it's helping them. I think it helped them down the stretch of the season. Yeah, I would agree. I think they'll feel much more relaxed going into the series. I think you're right on to say that the expectations aren't as high. Coming off the offseason, the Blues, you know, trading or letting walk, you know, David Backus, Troy Brower, they traded Brian Elliott. Really that veteran leadership that they had in years past that led them, you know, last year to the Western Conference Finals. I think in many Blues fans' eyes, they felt like this was a little bit of a reset. That being said, the Blues, after after a poor December and January, have, have turned things around and, and, are, and are playing very competitively now. Yeah. Um, so we'll see how we'll, we'll we'll see how they do, and, and I think you're right. I think this is this is a team that's more based um, on on speed and skill than the team that's going to wear you down with with their physical play. I like Tarasenko. Obviously, he's just a, an assassin with the puck. One of the best goal scorers in the league. Pareko, Petrangelo on the point. I, I think there's uh, some gems. Obviously, Sports and Company. The Wild, it's interesting because they had the injury bug. I think they were beaten up with some injuries, a case of the mumps, which I didn't even know still existed, but they were still dealing with some issues. I'm going to pick the Wild in seven because I think they do have the deeper team. I think the big thing, though, for me, Justin, and it's not so much a knock as I haven't seen it before, Jake Allen has to show me that he can win a playoff series as the goalie and not just the spot starter. And I don't know if he can against the Wild. We'll find out. I like the Wild to eke one out here. Yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with just because I'm a St. Louis <laughs> guy. I'm gonna go with the Blues in seven. 
but I think you're right on. I think the um, Devin Dubnik, Jake Allen battle is what is is pivotal in this series. Like I mentioned earlier, if Dubnik is the you know the Dubnik that we saw early in the season, they're going to be a tough team for the Blues to beat. But you know, if, if he's something less than that and Jake Allen plays well, uh, the Blues may be able to squeak it out. All right. See, I, admit, I like the fact that you admitted that, you know, you did it because you were a St. Louis guy. It's helpful. It's, it's transparency. That's a good thing. But all right, let's go to the Pacific Division. Justin Petruska, Money Mitch Effect. Two more playoff matchups to discuss. Pacific Division champs get again the Anaheim Ducks, and they get the Calgary Flames in the first round. Calgary, a good story. One of the hottest teams down the stretch. Former Blues goalie Brian Elliott leading the charge there. The Ducks, Justin, again win the division, again come in with some momentum. But if history's taught us anything, it's that they're going to lose game sixes and sevens. So I I don't know. I mean, I still like the Ducks here, but any Ducks postseason collapse can't shock anybody at this point. You read my mind, and I think we, we have the, the, the same prediction. I, I like the Ducks in the series. I think the Flames are have a little bit of um, – they're a very green team in that, you know, their top line, this will be their first time in the playoffs. I like what I've seen this year out of out of Matthew Kachuk. Yeah. <laughs> but it's hard, it's hard to argue with the likes of Ryan Getzlaff and Corey Perry and Ryan, and Ryan Kessler. So I'm going. I'm going Ducks. I like what the Flames have to offer this year. Obviously, don't think this is their their year, uh, but I'm certainly looking for good things in the years to come from the Flames. Yeah, can I say Ducks in five or Flames in seven? Can I bridge that gap? Like the Ducks are going to be a three one, and they better cl- close it out in five. Uh, but no, I you know, we the Ducks are Perry. They're Getzlaff. Fowler's having a good season. Ricard Raquel's emerging, and, and I like what I've seen out of John Gibson. It's just a matter of can they put it together? Can they focus? Will their top players you know, not go away? I, I look at the Flames as that good story. Elliott, again, has had a run, but the defense just I don't think is going to be there. And I think Anaheim is a tough matchup for them. They're just going to grind them down and make life difficult for Calgary. But you mentioned Matthew Kachuk. He reminds me uh, of uh, Dave Killer Carlson, Slapshot. That guy's a, a lunatic out there. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's, I like yeah, watching I mean, him. He's certainly, um, he's certainly not, a, not afraid to stick his nose where it shouldn't be. Um, and I'm sure, you know, coming from the, uh, from the L.A. market, that the L.A. fans haven't been too happy with him no, uh, no. ruffling uh, the feathers of Drew Doughty. Yeah, it's, uh, I like the passion. Obviously, Keith's son is, uh, is, has a lot of emotion in the game. I think he's fortunate the era he's playing in because if there was more fighting, if there was more violence, it could be a diff- difficult story for him. But it's good to see. It's just the, There are times when you're just like, please tone it down, you're going to get killed out here. But, you know, it, it's good to see. One more series left to talk about, and that's the Edmonton Oilers and the San Jose Sharks. Edmonton with home ice in this matchup, and Justin, I, I look at this series maybe with the most excitement, other than that we mentioned Columbus... Pittsburgh matchup, but from a pure talent and a tactical standpoint, I don't know that it gets much better than this. You have the young upstart Oilers with the best scorer in the game right now in Connor McDavid, and you have the San Jose Sharks who are predicated on depth, on some interesting play. We know about Pavelski, but Brett Burns having a season for the ages. I'm, I, I think tactically this could be a very good series. I agree. Um, I have this one going, it's hard to say, maybe six, seven games. 
ultimately, I think what I'd like to see, I'd like to see the Oilers win it in six or seven games. I'm going to go with Oilers in six. Okay. Uh, I think that because over the last, I would say, month or two of the season, you know, you had the Sharks who were, um, you know, the top spot in the division fell to third in the division. And really over that same period of time, the Oilers have been surging and playing really well as this season has progressed. So I'm looking for that momentum and that surge to continue uh, here in the first round. Yeah, I want to pick the Oilers, but I'm going to go Sharks here. I just, like I said, with Toronto, Columbus, I think there is a learning curve. I think San Jose having the experience, having uh, been to a finals, having a goalie they can trust, and defensemen they can trust. Edmonton's a great story, how they were able to miraculously turn all those number one overall draft picks into a competitive team. It's just riveting. But I also think that defensively, they're just not there yet. And if they would have played Anaheim, Calgary, you could have talked me into it. But this, a Sharks team that has aspirations of unfinished business and getting back there, that can grind out wins. And I don't think you're ever going to shut down McDavid. But if you're going to contain him, I can think of a lot worse teams than the Sharks and what they can do. So it'll be fascinating. I do want to know what you think about the season Burns had. Have you ever seen a defenseman play quite like him? <laughs> no, and I think uh, I think you know just by the points that he's putting up year over year, the rest of the NHL hasn't hasn't seen you know something like him before and don't quite know how to play him. You know he's the he's the first man back in the uh, in the defensive zone, but he at times can be you know the first four checker in the uh, in the offensive zone. Yeah. Um, so it's all you don't know where he's going to be. He's great on the power play. He's great you know at full strength and on the penalty kill. He can be a little bit of, a, of, of an X factor um, in this series. Yeah, no, for sure. And it's funny, I went to the NHL skills competition this year uh, down at Staples, and you saw McDavid, who, who did the fastest lap, was unbelievably electrifying. But to me, even more impressive than that, and any of the shooting stuff, Justin, was Burns at the shooting competition. They had the, uh, the, ta- the target, and they just kept moving people back. And he was the only player on each roster from the red line, from center ice, to go top shelf and hit the target. And I think that just shows you the kind of uh, power and accuracy that he has shooting. And you know how hard that is. I was blown away by that. Yeah, you know, last year the, the Blues uh, faced the Sharks in the Western Conference Final. So, so I, I got to see quite a bit of what Brent Burns has to offer. And, you know, I'm just envisioning his one-timers from the point on the power play and and how good and effective he can be. So if he's in that position and um, you know he turns it on like he had last year, it, it is hard to argue with uh, with his skill set. Yeah, well, for sure. It's time now to discuss who you think is going to win it all. So, Justin, who's your finals pick? Way too early. We're going to just get this out of the way, so when we're wrong, it's over and we can move on. But who do you have in the finals, and who do you have winning it? Wow. Um, in the Western Conference, a little cliche because you know they're the the best Western Conference team, but for me it's hard to argue with the Blackhawks again. You know, year after year they're they're at top of the Western Conference. They have the depth, they have the experience. You know, barring any injuries um, or any critical injuries, for me I, I see the I see the West the Blackhawks coming out of the uh, coming out of the Western Conference. In the Eastern Conference, 
you know, I tend to think this year is Washington's year. Again, you know, it's cliche picking the two top teams out of the Eastern and Western Conference, but Washington has been there in the playoffs through multiple rounds the last few years. I think this year is the year that they that they put it all together. So for me, I'm looking at a at a Washington Blackhawks final. You know what? I agree with that. Those were my picks. We we're on the same page, and and I think you know everybody talks about how wide open it was in the playoff picture, but it's hard to argue against Chicago. I think all those other Western teams have flaws that Chicago can expose and get by. And I like Washington. I like the fact that they had to fight to the end of the season, which they didn't do last year. And I think they're going to get through, too. And the Blackhawks in their three runs, Justin, they never went up against a Capitals team or even if it's Pittsburgh, Crosby and the Penguins. So this would be great for the league to finally see that Chicago-Washington or Chicago-Pittsburgh uh, series. I think the Capitals win their first cup. I know it's cliche, but I'm going with Washington this year. I'd like to see it. I'd like to see someone new win the cup. As a St. Louis fan, always watching the, the Blues-Blackhawks rivalry, um, at a certain point, uh, you're ready for someone else to win the cup. Um, that being said, I, you know, I think, uh, I think if Washington makes it, I think Alexander Ovechkin has the the electricity to carry the, uh, you know, the Capitals on his shoulders and and victory. All right, so we're on the same page there. It's going to be a fun postseason. We're always excited for hockey. Justin Petruska, thanks for coming on the show and discussing some puck. We'll have to have you back. And uh, yeah, one last question: Do you think? Connor McDavid, you know, he had a good season and all, but do you think he'd be, uh, you know, slew power play worthy? Think he would have been able to play with you guys on the power play? I don't know. I don't know. That'd be pushing it. Um, that would be pushing it. Uh, <laughs> You'd have to... I heard that we were uh, we were calling up Brenneman and, and Whitehead, so oh. that might that might push McDavid down to the second. Oh God! Unit. Oh man, there's some references there. Yeah, I just he's. I think so. My caveat is. He's got to know how to order Subway with just three toppings. If he can do that, he's golden. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Some inside humor there. But Justin, thanks again. It was a pleasure catching up. We'll have to do this soon. Anytime. Special thanks, as always, to our guests, Jose Youngs and Justin Petruska. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. The Money Mitch Effect can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. All episodes of the series are on all three sites. Make sure you check them out there. Follow me at Twitter, MoneyMitchM21, for sports and other takes. Thanks to Tim Adams for the beats, Brian Nelson for the logo. There'll be one more show this week. we got the NBA playoff preview to talk about as well. Seeding, in certain cases, still determined. The East are trying to figure out who makes the playoffs and who gets the top seed. We'll be discussing that, as well as another uh, interesting segment. we got to talk some football and uh, some unique things you're not going to want to miss this week. I, I trust that you believe me on that one. This was the Money Mitch Effect. I am Mitch Michaels. Thanks for listening again, and enjoy the hockey playoffs. I know I will.